Shabbat Shalom. Today I want to talk about why we need a Hanukkah movement today. We're in the season of Hanukkah, and I really believe that as we look closely at the story, we'll see some similarities between what was going on in the days of the Maccabees and what's happening right now all around us in our nation and even in our world. And because of that, I believe we need a Hanukkah movement today. Think about it for a minute. Hanukkah is the story of God's people turning their backs on His ways and embracing the customs and traditions of the nations. And in response, God empowers godless tyrants to strip His people of their freedoms and to ultimately persecute them. And after transgression and subsequent judgment takes place, the people finally awaken, they return to the Lord, they, re- they join a resistance as they lift up and re-embrace the law of God as a way of life. It is in this context of repentance and rededication that God responds to his people in mercy, helps them to overthrow their tyrants, and then reestablishes his people's freedoms and blessings once again. So today we're going to explore Daniel's prophecy and the times we're living in today and how to apply the principle of Hanukkah in garnering our freedom, our peace, and our happiness. So before I get started, I want to go ahead and read Daniel chapter 8. That's the foundation of the prophecy that's going to be recorded as fulfilled in the books of the Maccabees. So I thought it would be important for us to kind of hear the whole chapter read um, as we jump into the text today. So I'm going to invite uh, Minister Don to come forward at this time and to go ahead and read Daniel chapter 8, almost the entire chapter. Hope you're awake. Is it on? Yep. Daniel 8, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the providence of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ule Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, Behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in the front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. With the longer one coming up last, I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. 
So we hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down and even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgressions, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will a vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. It said to me, for 230 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between the eyes of the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represents four kingdoms, which will arise from its nation, although not with his power in the, la in the latter period of their rule. When the, tra when the transgressor has run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, not by his own power, and he will destroy an extraordinary, extraordinary extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will he will destroy mighty men and the holy place and the holy place and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to exceed from his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease he will even oppose the prince of princesses but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of this evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. That is the backdrop of uh, the story of the Maccabees. In fact, if you'll go and read uh, the first book of Maccabees, at least the first book, uh, you'll see this story unfold uh, in its details, describing the first great king of Greece uh, who came, Alexander the Great, the horn that took down the Medes and the Persians. It's a fascinating fulfillment of all that Daniel prophesied. And this is the story of Hanukkah. And so as we jump into this text, we need to answer some questions. What and who is the little horn? And how does he view himself? What is his agenda? 
And where is God in all of this? Why does God allow this to happen to his people? And then finally, what lessons can we learn and apply today? So let's answer these questions. Number one, what and who is the little horn? Whenever you have apocalyptic literature, you're going to find that it's filled with symbols, metaphors, figures of speech. That's just the uh, uh, context or uh, um, tools that are employed in that genre of literature. So in that genre, a horn is a symbol. It's a symbol for power and authority. And Greece is the empire that's coming on the scene. Greece is the next world empire that will take over the Medes and the Persians. And Alexander the Great is the first great horn, the first great power and authority of this world empire. And then he's going to die soon after he rises to fame. And he does. He rises very early. He's one of the greatest generals in world history. And he accomplishes just enormous things in a short period of time. And as he's still very young, I think in his 30s, uh, young 30s, he dies. And, uh, and then his empire is divided into four. And then out of those four uh, uh, kingdoms, uh, one of those kings has a son. And that son is Antiochus Epiphanes. So we have this little horn rising up out of this broken up empire. And this is what Daniel was prophesying was going to happen. It's the little horn that's going to attack and persecute Israel. And even though it's a little horn, make no mistake about it, he has a super power military force that's feared among the nations. And Israel's no match, absolutely no match for the power of this wicked one. So this is who he is. He comes on the scene and he is a bad guy. In fact, it's interesting that he views himself as a divine being. He takes on the title Epiphanes, which in the Greek means God manifest. His name is Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, which which is a view of himself, basically proclaiming, I am God manifest. You know, bow to me. I know what I'm doing. Do what I tell you to do. I'm the king. I'm your God. Bow to your sensei, right? Bow to your ruler. And so uh, this is kind of ha- uh, kind of what happens in that, that time period. And uh, he's the guy that we want to kind of keep our, our eye on. Now, note that in Daniel 8, 23, we have a description of kind of his temperament. He's, he's arrogant and he's cunning. And it says in verse 23, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. He is a smart cookie, bad cookie, but a smart cookie. He's very, very seductive, convincing, persuasive, and cunning. His agenda is to crush people and cause them to basically submit to him and to, uh, to really kind of, you know, uh, bow to his authority. It goes on to say in 8, verses 10 through 11, it, this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. He wasn't just interested 
in ruling over people in the civil realm. He even saw himself as a Messiah. He even exalted himself and basically took away from the Messiah his role as a priest. He says, I will govern even the religious matters of people. I am God manifest. And so this is his mindset. In verse 12, it says, It, this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, he will fling truth to the ground and perform its well and prosper. He's going to turn truth upside down. He's going to take what is true and he's going to pervert it. He's going to twist it. He's going to redefine everything, if you will. This is part of what he has come to do. And he's going to be able to accomplish that because of his great might and his great power. Verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Keep in mind, God is the one who grants authority. God is the one who gives power. And God has allowed this to take place. Verse 25, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they're at ease. So he's going to come and seduce people. He's going to deceive them. He's going to cause them to fall away from the Lord. That's his agenda. He wants them to worship him as God manifest. He is a forerunner of the Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist. If you want to understand the coming Antichrist and what he's going to do, it's here. This is the blueprint. They're always the same. It's just a different ruler that uh, the powers of hell uses. But the powers of hell never change their agenda. Their agenda remains the same. It's a coup d'etat. Take the place of God. Pervert his ways. Make people worship the evil one versus the true and living God. So, it says, He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. In other words, his end will come, and it won't come at the hands of men. And if you read the story of the Maccabees and study the history of this particular uh, drama, you'll see that God takes him out at the end in a way that's, that's not with human agency, uh, just like what was prophesied. So let's look a little bit closer at his agenda, and I'll just kind of summarize it. He comes to strip the people of Israel of their religious liberties. God had granted Israel freedom. He freed them from what? Egypt. He says, you come worship me in liberty, in freedom. You come and worship me. And so one of the things that the Antichrist does is he comes to take away those religious liberties that are given by God. Ultimately, he wants to strip the, strip the people of God of their faith. He wants to so wear them down and so discourage them that they'll turn their backs on the living God. And then finally, he wants to coerce them through mandates to serve and pay homage to him and his kingdom as God manifest on earth. Our next question. God, where are you in all of this? And why are you allowing this to happen 
to your people, right? Where are you in this? And that's a, that's a huge mystery when you think about it, right? Because it touches on the problem of evil in the first place. Even Yeshua on the cross was surprised in the withdrawal of the Father's presence at, at probably the greatest need in his life. And it was there that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even Jesus is asking the question, Where are you, God, in all of this suffering, all of this chaos? God is ever-present. God is ever Even if it feels like he's a thousand miles away, he's not. He's always present. And the problem is not God. It's our sins. The dilemma of evil is rooted in our sins, not God. Daniel 8 and verse 12 says, On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn. On account of sin and rebellion, they're going to be handed over to the author of sin and rebellion. It's the people that brought this on themselves, not God. When they're saying, God, where are you? God's saying, hey, I haven't left. The problem isn't me. It's you. Your sins have alienated you from me. Your sins have beckoned the curse. And in your obstinance, I've allowed this invading army to come in and to strip you of your liberties, your freedoms, your peace, and your happiness. On account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling truth to the ground, perform its will, and prosper. This word transgression, uh, it's in, in Hebrew, it comes from uh, a root word. In other words, this word is a, a derivative of a root word. And this root word in the Hebrew has three nuances. Rebellion, revolt, and sin. That's what this word transgression is conveying. The concepts of a rebellion, a revolt against God, against heaven. And it's the sin that is causing this. It's the fundamental idea of this root word. Now, let me kind of break this down a little bit more for us. The fundamental idea of this root word is a breach of relationships, civil or religious, between two parties. In a context of international relationships, the verbal form designates a casting off of allegiance, a rebellion against a ruler or rulers. Think about that, all right? In a religious sense, think about this. Israel was accused of rebelling against her divine king and the established covenant between them. She entered into a covenant. She said, yes, Lord, everything you say we will do. And then they broke away and they said no and went their own way doing their own thing. That's sin. It constitutes a revolt against heaven. It's rebellion. And God's saying, because of your rebellion, I've sent an army to break you down, to chastise you for your breach of the covenant. This is not the first time that Israel rebelled against the Lord, against her king, and against his law. In fact, she was rebellious from the beginning. Isaiah 48, 8. 
You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been open, because I knew you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. Interesting. Now, how does God usually respond to betrayal and rebellion? Psalm 89, verses 30 through 32 says this. If his sons abandon my law, speaking of Israel, if Israel abandons my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their wrongdoing with the rod and their guilt with afflictions. God says, look, I'm going to stay faithful. This is not about your salvation. Now I'm beat you silly for your rebellion. You know, you're not going to get away with this. You're better than that. I expect you to keep your part of the covenant. And if you don't, because I love you, I will chastise you. And how the Lord chastises us sometimes can be very, very intense. When Israel's really been rebuilding for a long period of time, for many, many years, he usually sends an invading army to strip her of all of her liberties, to bring her to a place in which she has nothing, to make her bow to, to the idols that are represented in her sin and rebellion. And he does that because he loves her. He wants her to cry out, repent, return to him. And when she does, he returns to her over and over and over, pours out his mercy, restores the blessings that were lost in the disobedience. Hosea 8.1 has a very, very interesting take on this. It says, put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have violated my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now, I know most of us have watched the YouTube videos, you know, they're just out there, especially, you know, like the nature ones. And, I, I, you know, have you seen the ones with eagles and, and just descending, you know, you know, above a lake to basically take one of the trout? And how they fold their wings back. And I mean, the speed that they come with. I mean, they're, they're just coming at such a speed that even at the point where the trout can see the bird, it's too late. The coming of the eagle is swift and without notice, unstoppable. And this is how God describes the judgment that he brings. He says, the enemy will come like an eagle without notice, quick, and there's nowhere to run. And why does this enemy come? Why do I allow the enemy to come like an eagle? Because of your rebellion against me. You rebelled against what? My law. Every king has a law. Our king has a law. Jesus didn't do away with the law. He came, fulfilled, and established the law. We're a part of his kingdom. He has laws that govern how we should live our lives. For us to say, oh no, we'll just live our lives the way we want to live is treasonous. It's rebellion. We're signing up for a horrible time because he loves us. He'll make sure that we're miserable because he loves us and he wants us to return to his ways. Hanukkah, the revolution of Hanukkah is a returning, a commitment to his law, to his ways. We need a Hanukkah revolution 
today. The church needs to return to the law of her king. Yeah, very rarely does Israel ever deny God. Israel doesn't lose her faith in God. She just gives up walking in her ways. The reformers, the prophets, they come and what do they do? They always call Israel not back to faith in God. No, 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 no. They believe in God already. What they call her back to is the law of God. The prophets come and say, come, receive, re-embrace, walk in the laws of God, return to the laws of God. That is the voice of the prophets. This is what Hanukkah is all about. Rededicating ourselves to the ways of God. When we sin and fall into sin and even go our own ways, we don't quit believing in God. We just justify our sins. That's what we do. We justify what we're doing. And God's saying, I'll smack you. I love you. I love you, but I'll smack you down because I love you. I want you to walk in my ways. Therein lies the blessing. I want you to be blessed and prosperous. So in the past, we've seen God use pagan authorities over and over and over when he judges his people for going astray. The big question is, specifically, what were Israel's transgressions that brought on her the judgment of God via a pagan king who was ruthless in every way? Let's look at those. First Maccabee chapter 1, verses 11, and I'll read down through 15. In those days, and this is, this is Israel's transgression, okay? So in Daniel, when it says it's because of transgressions, that this all happened? Here's the transgressions listed. Here's what Israel did that brought about this horrible debacle of judgment. In those days, there emerged in Israel a group of renegades. The writer calls these transgressors renegades, covenant breakers, rebels. Just like Daniel prophesied, in those days there emerged in Israel a group of renegades who led many people astray, led them away from the Torah, saying, let us enter into an alliance with the Gentiles around us. Let us enter into an alliance with the pagans around us, those that don't know God. Let's join with them. It says, many disasters have come upon us since we separated ourselves from them. Do you know when you live a holy life separate unto the Lord, it always solicits persecution? You know, whenever, whenever you know, if you run with the pack, then the pack's going to embrace you and love you. But if you stand opposed, juxtaposed with a different lifestyle, then everyone's going to throw rocks at you, right? They're going to come against you. That's just the way it is. And they're saying, you know what? We don't like being different. We don't like, you know, walking in God's ways have made us different and it's created problems. We don't want problems. So let's be like the world around us. That way they'll like us and they'll quit troubling us. And this was part of the way that they justified giving up the ways of God to embrace the ways of the world around them. Verse 12, this proposal received great popular support. And when some of the people immediately thereafter approached the king, he authorized them to introduce the practices observed by the pagans. Gentiles. Gentiles who do not know the Lord. 
synonymous with the idea of paganism. So the king says, yeah, go ahead. I give you the authority to teach the ways of our world to the people of Israel. That's problematic. The Lord our God is a jealous God, and he's not going to tolerate us flirting around with the gods of this world. Goes on to say, therefore they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom. They concealed the marks of their circumcision. They abandoned the Holy Covenant. Thus they allied themselves to the Gentiles and sold themselves to the power of evil. This is what the Bible calls lawlessness. Right? This is what the Bible calls falling away from the Torah as you embrace the ways of the world. It's the great falling away from the law of God. You and I, in Messiah, we're called to be holy. What does the word holy mean? The word holy in Hebrew means to be separate, to be set apart and separate, to be different, to be distinguishable from the secular culture around you. They wanted to be just like their culture. God says, no, you're called to be holy and separate. You need to be separate and set apart and distinguished because I'm trying to save people out of that. You know, you're trying to jump back into that? They'll never find me. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be calm. Fix your hopes completely on the grace that you will be granted at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like obedient children, do not yield to evil desires you had in your former ignorance. And here's the verse. For he who called you is holy. The Lord our God is holy. He's not like the world. His ways are far above the world. As high as the heavens are above the world, so are his ways. He's holy. Therefore, you be holy yourselves in all of your conduct. Every realm of human experience is to be set apart by God's ways. You be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For scripture says, be holy for I am holy. Holiness is a way of life for us who believe. Israel's love affair, they had this love affair with being like everyone else rather than being holy. And that led to their own biblical culture being canceled, right? Think about that. Soon after their rebellion against heaven, Antiochus Epiphany moves to cancel their biblical culture. The cancel movement, if you think about it, it's been around for a long, long time. And what does he do? He cancels the Torah, the very scriptures of Israel. He forbade anyone to read the Torah. If you were caught reading the Torah, you could lose your life over that under this tyrant. So he cancels the Torah. Then he cancels circumcision. Then he cancels the Shabbat and the festivals and the dietary laws. He cancels their worship services and says, you will not worship the Lord your God any longer. You'll worship Antiochus Epiphanes. I am God. You're going to worship on our appointed times at our direction according to our rituals. 
1 Maccabees 41 through 50 says this. Then the king issued an edict to his whole kingdom that all of his subjects should become a united people with each nation abandoning its particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the decree of the king and many among the Israelites adopted his religion. Think about that. This is the great falling away in terms of a foreshadowing of what ultimately comes at the end of the age. Sacrificing to idols, profaning the Sabbath, the king also sent messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with edicts commanding them to adopt practices that were foreign to their country, to prohibit sacrifices, libations in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and the feast days, to defile the temple and its priests, to build altars, temples, and shrines for their idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean beasts, to leave their sons uncircumcised, and to allow themselves to be defiled with every kind of impurity and abomination so that they would forget the law and change all of their observances. Anyone who refused to obey the mandate of the king was to be put to death. Hmm. Once the pagan powers, those pagan powers to be, begin to oppress Israel, she then caves and falls in step with all of the godless mandates. Almost all of Israel is in lockstep with this king and his mandates. There's like, there's like hardly anyone in all of Israel at this point that is staying faithful to the law of God, except for one family, maybe a few others. And that is the story of the Maccabee family, of course. You know the rest of the story. I don't have time to go into it. But suffice it to say that when a few stand up, just a few, and started resistance, many others will have a change of heart and will return to God, join the resistance, and begin to fight for their freedoms. It only takes a few that will stand up just a few, and start the resistance. Now, those that stand up to start it risk their very lives. That's why no one wants to do it. No one wants to be the first out of the gates. Yeah, it's a big price to pay. But once it gets going, people will join it. We saw that in the American Revolution. It was just a very small percentage of people that finally said enough to the abuses of the king. And after that broke out, they began to really grow in their ranks. And even against all odds, God championed them like he did the Maccabees. And just a few colonies ended up overthrowing the superpower of the world. We see this over and over and over, not only in Israel's history, but even in other contexts. God will champion the cause of anyone whose heart is completely his, who will stand for him, who will be holy like he is holy. God will move on their behalf. And through them bring many, many blessings. So they, they end up overthrowing their superpower. And with great joy, they rededicate their lives and their temple to the living God. And on the heels of that, God begins to restore blessings over their lives once again. Why is Hanukkah needed today? I want to, I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that we're in the same level of tyranny that Israel was facing in the time of the Maccabees, but we're on that path. 
Make no mistake about it. We're on that path. Our nation as a nation has turned away from God for decades, for decades. And we've got more brazen in our rebellion, more pointed in our rebellion. And I believe that what God is doing is the same thing we've seen over and over and over. He's allowing tyrants now to strip us of our rights. And we're watching it happen all around us. We're even feeling that. So no, it's not as bad as it was in the days of the Maccabees, but it's, it's on that path. And I want to say to you, do you want, to, you want to wait until it gets really bad? Or do you want to do something now? You know, if we wait and just allow this to continue, it's going to get really bad. But I believe that if the church, if the people of God will wake up and cry out to God and return to his law, I know God will champion our cause and turn this around. And that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm praying for. The cancel culture movement is in full drive right now. Think about it. Let's talk about the civil context. If you believe that marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman, you'll be branded an enemy of the state and canceled. And we're seeing this happen to different people and what it costs them in terms of business or livelihood and so forth. If you believe that there are only two biological genders, male and female, you'll be branded an enemy of the state and canceled. You know, we have to really watch what we put up on, on YouTube and other social media in terms of like um, our, our, our titles and so forth because it doesn't take much to be canceled, to be censored. And then we lose our ability to reach even more people than just those who come here. So we have to really be careful about that. It's just really sad that that the freedom of speech that we have always, always enjoyed is now pretty much gone for those who are counterculture. Counterculture is code for holy. When you're holy, you're counter to your culture, and that's who they're canceling. Anyone that's counter to the accepted culture of the day are targeted to be canceled. If you are pro-life, you're branded as an enemy of the left and canceled because they have the power right now. If you believe that people should be judged based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, you will be branded an enemy of the radical Marxists and canceled. Think about the church. If you believe the Seventh-day Sabbath is still relevant and obligatory for believers, you'll be branded a heretic by the church and canceled. Lose your voice, your influence. Believe me, I understand that. For decades, I've seen that. If you believe that the holy days of God are still relevant and obligatory for believers, you'll be branded a heretic of the church and canceled. If you believe that the dietary laws of God are still relevant and obligatory for believers, you'll be branded a heretic of the church and canceled. I'm telling you right now, when you share your faith with others, when, you, when you're out there saying, no, the Seventh-day Sabbath, that's, that's like the fourth commandment. That's still in effect. What do you experience when you share that? You are marginalized every time. You're like, you're like kind of a fringe believer. Maybe you're still saved, but some people will even question that. Really? Honestly? That's unbelievable. 
Now, that's part of the evidence that the church has already fallen away from the law of God. I don't know what it is about, well, it's human nature, isn't it? Human nature says, I just want to fit and belong and be accepted by the society that I'm a part of. And because of that, the church has lost her voice, her influence, because she's just like the world around her. She's not different. She's not distinguishable. And yet, if you stand out and try to do that, oh yeah, they're going to pick up some rocks and throw them at you. Even the church will do that to you. Even the church will do that to you. I want to talk about the virus. And I know we're sick and tired of hearing about the virus. Believe me, I'm sick and tired of hearing about the virus. But I want to make this very, very clear. Very clear. I'm pro-choice. When it comes to the vaccine, I am pro-choice. Informed medical choice is a god given right. It's an inalienable right. Now the state appears to be complicit in creating what appears to be a gain of function virus. Almost all the evidence points to this virus being man-made. It's a gain of function virus. They tweaked it and made it super contagious and, and much more uh, life-threatening. So they make the virus, and then it gets out, and now it's all around the world. Think about that. They say it's killed over 5 million people around the world to date, and over 800,000 in the United States. Here's some questions. So, so, so they create a virus. Think about this. It looks like they created a virus and then it's out, and there's destruction, loss of life around the world. And then the same ones who are responsible for the gain-of-function virus that I believe they created, I think the evidence is, is pretty strong, the same ones make the vaccine, and they're going to make billions of dollars off the vaccine. These companies make hundreds of billions of dollars. They, they, the amount of, of money they make is just breathtaking. Make a virus, give the solution, and make billions off that? Yeah, what is that all about, right? But let's ask some fundamental questions about this, right? So, here's the big question. Will the vaccine keep you from getting the virus? The CDC says no. Hmm. Will the vaccine keep you from transmitting the virus? The CDC says no. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm th that, that, that's all I need to know. I don't think I'm taking that, that vaccine. Why would I want to take that? It's not going to stop me from getting it. It's not going to stop me from transmitting it. And they're going to make a ton of money off me. Will there be any long-term side effects from the vaccine? CDC? We don't know. What about short-term side effects? Well, the government has its own website that gives us the record of adverse events related to this vaccine. It's called VAERS. 
Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. This is what they've listed in association with the COVID-19 vaccine. To date, nearly 19,000 deaths, 97,000 hospitalizations, 101,000 urgent care visits, 143,000 doctor office visits, 11,000 bell palsies, 3,000 miscarriages, 9,000 heart attacks, 14,000 myocarditis, pericarditis, 30,000 permanently disabled, 21,000 life-threatening, and 34,000 severe allergic reactions. Most people are okay with these. When you look at how many vaccines have been given, this is actually a very small percentage of the people. And most people are okay with that as long as it happens to someone else whom they don't know about or don't have a relationship with who they don't care about. But if a loved one or even yourself is devastated by this, well, that's a whole different matter, isn't it? My point, the federal and many state and local governments are mandating the vaccine. Informed medical choice is a God-given right, and they're trampling on it. I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm against the mandates. Why? It's my body. It's your body. Our bodies belong to us, not the government. They don't belong to the CDC. They don't belong to anyone, not your employer. They belong to you. They belong to me, right? That's our body. And I have every right to say no to their vaccines that, in my opinion, perform poorly. Don't prevent me from getting the, the sickness and doesn't stop me from transmitting it. My immune system does quite well, by the way. My immune system does better than the vaccines. That's what I believe. And, and I don't have any side effects from my immune system. I love it. It loves me. It's the design of God. And yet, if you want to take a vaccine, that's your right. If I want to take a vaccine, that's my right. It's my body. I get to decide that. That's part of my religious framework. God gave me my body. And God says, take care of your body. And he empowers you and me to make our own informed decisions as to what we're going to do with our bodies. Take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine. That's our fundamental right. When the government mandates or your business mandates that you have to take an experimental vaccine that they don't even know what the long-term side effects are, that's tyranny. Wake up. What are you thinking? Wake up. And I know some of you went and got the shot because you were going to lose your jobs. I want to say two things to you. Number one, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. That type of coercion is such a burden to carry. Breaks my heart. I've heard stories. Makes me weep. People who love God did not want to take this, had to take it because they couldn't afford to lose their job. They have responsibilities. They have kids, right? And then they just beat themselves up for it. Don't do that. God understands. You're forgiven. 
you're forgiven. Forgive yourself. Move on. Move forward. Sooner or later, we're going to rise up and we're going to stop this tyranny. So you just hang in there. It's our body. We get to decide what goes into it. And we can decide whatever we want to do. You want to smoke a cigar? Smoke a cigar. You want to drink wine? Drink wine. You want to eat fast food? Eat fast food. It's your body. No one should tell you what you can or cannot do with your body. It's yours. Keep in mind that big pharma companies make hundreds of billions of dollars off their drugs. Mandates guarantee their monstrous, outlandish profits. What a business model, right? What a business model to have the backing of the federal government mandating things so that you just increase exponentially your profits. They don't care about you. They don't. You don't trust your body with anyone. You go to God and say, God, what do you want to do? What, what should I do? And then make your own informed decision. You're good to go. To think about this for a moment, though. The federal government mandates this. Businesses mandate this. And then they shield the pharmaceuticals from all liabilities. People, that should wake us up to something isn't right, right? Yeah. Revelation 18 says at the end that God shakes and breaks Babylon because she deceived the nations with her pharmakia, her drugs. That would include vaccines. Big business is also trampling on our inalienable rights by denying our religious rights to an exception to the vaccines. So when the vaccines got, came out, all kinds of churches signed documents to get a religious exemption for anyone in their communities that wasn't comfortable taking this vaccine. Most employers turned those down. Yeah, yeah. So there's this big, big rise in America of saying, well, hey, what is going on? What happened to our religious rights? We've never seen this before. Businesses used to respect religious rights. And now they're just saying, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Some of these businesses, employers, were asking people, why do you, why, what is your religious opposition? And, and they have this list of questions that they ask you that basically gives them a lot of inf information as if, as if they're religious ex experts. And they're not. They're, they're CEOs, they're business owners, they're managers. They're not religious experts. Religion is subjective, it's spiritual. Yeah, see, the courts have already decided your religion is between you and your God, and that's sufficient. And if you say, I have an opposition based on my heartfelt convictions, beliefs, right? That's good enough, no questions. That, that's good enough for you to have an exception. Yeah, they're denying the majority of all exceptions across the board. Big tech is censoring credible scientists, doctors, and researchers who differ with the CDC's vaccine golden calf. That's their golden calf. Yeah, like Lord of the Rings, my precious. Remember the ring? Yeah. It's, it's Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci with his vaccine. You know, that's the only answer to this problem. We don't care what other scientists say. We don't care what other doctors say. We don't care what they've already done, experienced with thousands of the patients in the field with therapeutics, treating it early on. We're saying, no, none of that works. The only thing that works is our golden calf. Get the golden calf. 
Oh, by the way, it didn't work. Get another one. It didn't work. Get some boosters. Well, we make billions and billions of dollars and we have no idea what it's going to do to your long-term health. But it's okay because if it screws it up, we got other drugs that we're going to make more money off as we manage your suffering. And that's why I'm against mandates. I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm against mandating the vaccine. Does that make sense? People, we need to take a stand against and resist this bizarre medical tyranny that is growing all around us. We have and will exercise our God-given right and responsibility to worship our God unhindered and unmolested by the state. The church needs to assert her jurisdiction. You know, we saw, we saw even in the, in, in the days, when we go back to like the days of uh, King David, uh, you had the temple that had its own jurisdiction. They took care of religious matters. Then you had the king and the civil government. And they took care of their matters. And sometimes the priests would tread into the realm of the civil uh, arena and assert themselves. And the king and his armies would push the priests back, rebuke them, and say, get out. You're outside of your jurisdiction. And there was times that the kings would come into the priestly realm and try to sacrifice and enter in and assert their agenda in the ecclesiastical realm. And the priests would call for their temple army, their, their, their guardians, right, who were military men too. And they would tell the king and his armies, you get out of here. This is not your jurisdiction. You have no authority here and push them back. And that's the balance of powers. And then you have the third realm, which is your home, right? Your jurisdiction. And you get to govern that. It's important to understand these jurisdictions. We have and will exercise our God-given right and responsibility to worship our God unhindered and unmolested by the state. The state made all kinds of mandates in 2020. They shut us down. You remember that? We were shut down for weeks, twice in 2020. Over the summer, we were shut down. And then again, late in the fall, we were shut down. And it devastated our community. We still haven't recovered. In fact, all kinds of communities were devastated. Many, many churches were devastated. Some of them just went, went and closed. Yeah, because they shut us down. They said, your church is not essential. And then they granted the liquor stores and the pot shops to stay open and said they were essential. That's paganism, people. That's when pagan people rule and reign. That's what they do. They keep the pot shops open and the liquor stores, and they tell the people of God, you can't worship for a while. Just stay in your homes. Really? Now, we did that because they said 2 million dead by September. If you remember, go back, look at the data. They said 2 million people dead by September if we don't do these shutdowns, you know. How many were dead in September? You know, we're, think about that. 2 million people. We, we're, we're, what, a year and a half down the road, and it's just, I think, cresting 800,000. They're so far off in their, in their deal. But here's the deal. We thought, well, if it's that bad, let's go ahead and shut down. We did that. And then we figured out they'd been fudging on the numbers, you know. Think about that for a moment. And we lost all of our momentum, and it really hurt us. And now they're ramping up again, the mandates, and some more shutdowns. So I've decided 
I'm done with it. It's Hanukkah. I've read the story, and it's time to resist. And we want to say, if you're going to mandate a mask in your civil realm, we'll wear it. I'll wear it at King Supers. I'll wear it at Home Depot. I'll wear it at the ball games, whatever. That's your realm. But when you come into my realm and say, you have to wear a mask or you have to shut down, really? We're done with that. Get out of our jurisdiction. We ain't doing that no more. Who do you think you are? These are our God-given rights. And you're forbidden to molest us in, re in reference to our religious freedoms. And it's time to stand up and say enough is enough. And if we do, I know we'll pay a price, but ultimately we're going to win this as people join all around America. And they are. Churches are rising up and they're saying enough. Stay out of our realm. This is not for you. It's not the smallpox death rate 30%. It's about 1%. What are you doing? What are you thinking, right? We're done with it. We're done. So, We're six minutes over, aren't we? Okay, so I better end this up. Let me just, let me just end it with this. Well, <laughs> next week we'll, we'll continue on, right? But suffice it to say, the Hanukkah revolution has begun. I'm praying and hoping that 2022 will mark a turnaround for the church across America, across the world. As she rises up, it says to these elitists, these tyrants, enough. Now, what precipitates that is we got to turn back to the law of God, turn back to the ways of God, turn back to our fidelity in him to say, yes, we'll be holy like you are holy. We're going to live for the glory of your son and we're going to return to him. And if we do that, then we can stand up and we can resist and we will win our liberties back. And that's going to be the path. And I believe 2022 can be that year of a big turnaround for the church. And if the church turns around and gets it right, It'll turn things around for the nation in years to come. And we'll get back to a place in which we can move forward with the religious liberties of life, freedom, and the pursuit of our happiness as God intended it, as God gave it. So happy Hanukkah, and may your joy be full during this season that we all share in. Shabbat Shalom.